Good morning, everyone. So good to see every single one of you. And wonderful for those who are joining us online or on YouTube or our podcasts later on during the week. For those of you who don't know, my name is Stephen, and I just love Riverside, and I love being part of the leadership team here at Riverside. But before we dive into the message today, I have one more very important announcement for us, and that is on the 10th of April, which is in two weeks' time, we're doing an event called Who's Coming for Lunch?, And it is exactly what it sounds like, all right? Who's coming for lunch? We've come out of COVID where we all retreated into our caves and our holes. And some of us ran out of the cave straight away to engage with people. But some of us are maybe more tentatively looking to re-engage with the people around us. And maybe we feel like we're lacking community or we've lost touch, Maybe we feel like we've lost touch with people in the church or we haven't reached out or maybe they haven't reached out. Maybe we're in a clique and our circle needs to get bigger. Or maybe we're not in the clique and we're so desperate for community and for breaking down those walls or you're new and I know so many of you have joined us and so this is for you and what an incredible way to connect in community than over a meal. You see, Sundays is great. Sunday we get together. It's like the fountainhead of celebration of lives coming together, but we don't really get to know each other well on a Sunday. And so we want to create an opportunity on average around the homes in Joburg, three to four families to get together. And here's how it's going to work. If each of you, well, I'm not going to make you do it, but the invitation is that each of you will sign up. And you can sign up in two ways. Either you can sign up to host, whereby you're going to tell us, listen, on top of our family, we can take another four people. We can take another eight people. We can take another 12. We've even had people say, listen, we've got space for like 20. All right, so you can work that out on your own. So you can either sign up as a host, where you're going to tell us how many people you can take, or you're going to sign up as someone saying, just put me somewhere. And the point is, you might be nervous saying, but I don't know who I'm going to be set up with. And that's the point. Because we need to make the circle bigger. We need to get to know different people in the life of the church. And um, we, we trust that this environment is going to create an opportunity for that. The forms are available on the app if you click on, click on the events on our website, you'll find the form there. Otherwise, we have some actual pen and paper forms available for you at the kiosk to fill out and either give to those people or find myself or Bianca. But please take the opportunity. Take this opportunity and let's begin building community again. And now to jump into our series, we're in the middle of a series called Mind Your Step. And what the series is about is how can we, as followers of Jesus Christ, walk well outside of these four walls? You see, being a Christian is not lived in this nice little Christian, safe, protected bubble, but rather in the real world with real pressures and real pleasures, real pain and real problems And we're still called to be disciples, a.k.a. followers of Jesus in that world. And as we walk this world, maybe you've noticed that there are a couple of areas of life that can maybe trip us up. 
where we maybe as believers are more prone to putting our foot in it. And so the series is called Mind Your Step, so we can identify some of these tricky areas of life for us as believers to give us greater wisdom to walk this life well. And today, it is my, whoa, I don't know what we're to use here, but we're going to be talking about politics. Because don't we have enough to fight about when it comes to politics? I mean, not only do we have a real life war going on right now that is damaging families and tearing countries apart and messing up the global economy and your own personal budgets, but if you think about American politics, we are so influenced by American politics, and many of you have very strong feelings about American politics or maybe European politics. If we think about our own very complicated political history, painful history with still present painful ramifications. And if we think about that, politics isn't just about ideas, it's about people and about what is good for people. We have so much to fight about. And the question maybe you're asking is, but Stephen, I came to church today. Can we even talk about politics in church? Now, maybe there's two opposite extremes when it comes to this. And the one extreme, maybe some of you have experienced it in a church or maybe on an online forum where people do politicking from the pulpits. Meaning the pastors use, and I would even say abuse their pulpits to tell you who to vote for, to tell you what policies you should and shouldn't get behind. And then the other side, maybe an overreaction is to say, listen, we're just going to hunker down, stick our heads in the sand, talk about Jesus and not talk about anything else out there. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, what is politics about? Now, this is my definition. Politics is about a vision for humanity and society. And any one government is going to use their policies and their power to move society towards their particular vision for humanity and society. And that's why we have competing politics, because we have competing views for humanity and society, or competing pathways for how to get to that vision for humanity and society. But according to the Scriptures, and we don't have time to get into this, but government and church have two very different domains and responsibilities. But here's the thing. If you just look through the pages of history, including our own nation's history, things get very messy and even bloody when those two roles get confused. When government tries to do what church ought to do, and when church tries to do what government ought to do, And yet, if we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God also has a view and a vision for humanity and society. And while church and government have different spheres and domains of responsibility, the kingdom of God is going to have points of intersection. And so how do we as Christians 
navigate our faith and these points of intersection. Now, I've only got one sermon, thankfully, to do all of these things. So I'm not going to cover everything. And so I'm going to anchor today's message in the book of Daniel. If you do have your Bible here, we're going to be kind of bouncing around the first few chapters here. But if you read Daniel chapter 1, you kind of get the background of the story. I'm not going to read those verses. We've got a lot of text we're going to cover today. You can go read it in your own time. But the background of the Daniel story is that in 586 BC, this massive military beast known as Babylon came into Judah and destroyed Judah, Jerusalem, the temple. And along with all the death that would have happened because of that military defeat, a lot of the Jews were taken from there out of their homeland into this foreign land in exile. But one of Babylon's strategies was instead of just killing everyone off, we're going to find the best and the brightest of the elites of the Jews and we're going to take them into Babylonian culture and we're going to, this was their plan, re-indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. With Babylonian language, Babylonian ways of being and doing life and culture. And amongst this group of people was Daniel and some of his friends that we're going to speak about in a second. And so they were given a whole new identity, brought into this pagan political environment, literally working for the king. Not trying to make Babylon a Jewish nation, but needing to serve the needs of Babylon. And for all intents and purposes, Daniel and his friends looked like and sounded like Babylonians. They were even given Babylonian names. Now here's why even this is important. Because while this was a far from perfect situation, some Christians might say, but Daniel, you're a God-fearing, God-loving, God-worshipping guy. You can't work under that guy. You might say, well, Daniel didn't have a choice. He was a prisoner of war, essentially. Well, he actually did have a choice. He could have resisted and he would have been killed for it. But while Daniel was in a less than perfect situation, and just by the way, all present governments are less than perfect situations. What we're going to see today is how Daniel, as a God-worshipping, God-loving, God-honoring Jew, on one hand, could do certain things that to some people may look like compromise as he was involved in Babylonian politics and the heart of it. And at the same time, he knew where there was a line. And he said, over this line, I will not cross, even if it means losing my life. And it's a great wisdom and courage to walk this road. This is so important for us because for some people, for some Christians, any political engagement is compromise. Any political engagement is frowned upon. And what we need to know is that God 
does sovereignly place some Christians in political places of influence in different ways. Even if it's not a Christian government, even if it's not an ideal situation, even if there are some questionable policies, the difficult road they need to learn to walk, just like Daniel, is how can I be faithful and useful to God here? So then we get to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 2 starts to show us why God had Daniel positioned here. King Nebuchadnezzar had an incredibly terrifying dream. He couldn't go back to sleep. And so the next morning he gets all of his magicians and his sorcerers and astrologers and his wise men, which included Daniel and his friends together. And he said, listen, I want you to give me the interpretation of this dream, but so that I know you're not making it up, I'm not going to tell you what I dreamt. And if you get it wrong, off with your heads kind of thing. So these guys go away and they're like, this is impossible. No one can do that. Daniel realizes that he's in a very tricky situation. So he goes up to the king and says, please, just give me some time. Then we get to 2 verses 18. I love this verse. He goes to his friends and he says, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And I'll just read this verse because Daniel didn't have a martyr complex. He wasn't looking for every reason to die. In fact, his main motivation was, let's just make it another day, me and my friends. But let's come to the Lord on our behalf and see if He'll speak to us and see if we can work redemptively in the situation. But now I want to read from verse 19, which says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. We sang about this so wonderfully this morning. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power you have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, the reason why I read this praise part of the prayer is not because we're going to be talking about the dreams and visions of Daniel today. That's the kind of thing that will take hours and hours and hours and hours of preaching and coffee. But what I want us to notice in Daniel's response is that for Daniel, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, wasn't simply the God of Israel. He was the God of all nations. He didn't just see his God as one God. The Babylonian had their gods, one amongst many. No, our God is the God of all nations. Our God is sovereign over Israel, yes, and Babylon and all other nations. He realized and knew and prayed 
from the perspective that Yahweh is sovereign over all nations. And guys, this is a lesson we need to learn in our politicking. God isn't God of any one nation. There was a unique time boundary moment in time where Israel had a unique covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. But the point of that wasn't simply, he's our God, you've got your wrong gods, so we're better than you. Unfortunately, that is kind of how they did start to think, which is why they landed up in exile for the most part. But the point was always that God didn't simply want to bless Israel, but he wanted to bless all nations through Israel. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. Does that sound familiar? Being repurposed by Jesus in the book of Matthew. Israel was supposed to receive blessing from God so that through them, their neighbors and all nations on earth would be blessed. And that helps us understand that modern day nations like the USA, like the Republic of South Africa, do not have sole access to God's blessing. God is bigger than that. All the nations are His inheritance. He wants all nations to be blessed through His people. All nations will be represented in the new heavens and the new earth. King Nebuchadnezzar himself after being humbled by God, learned this lesson. Listen here, Daniel 4, verses 34 to 35. He responds to God saying, His dominion, as opposed to my dominion, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom is the one that endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Now listen. We live on a piece of land on planet Earth with some political boundaries. And so, yes, in a very real way, while we understand God's sovereignty over all nations, when it comes to where we're positioned, we are still engaging with national politics, whether we want to or whether we don't want to. We still have to figure out well, what does it mean for us to understand God's sovereignty over all nations, but how does that affect our nation? And of course we need to think about that, but as you do that, please don't reduce God's sovereignty to any single nation. God is bigger than that. God is the rightful king. We sang this today. God is the rightful king of all things, of all nations. He desires to bless all nations. I love what 19th century theologian and Dutch prime minister, Abraham Kaper, said. He said, There is not a single inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Then we get to Daniel chapter 3. You see, up to now, aside from a bit of a rocky start, Daniel being a prisoner of war, things were looking pretty good for him. He was chosen for his influence and his nobility and his power. God had blessed him and honored him. 
and his influence and his stature grew in this foreign kingdom. And up to now, things were looking pretty good for him. And that was the one side of the coin. Now we get to the other side of the coin because in Genesis chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue of himself covered in gold, 27 meters high, 2.7 meters wide. And he says, here's what I want everyone to do. He says, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, if you've ever been in a Christian Sunday school environment, you would know the story. This part of the story focuses on Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their thinking was, listen, we're here. If you want to make us look like Babylonians, that's fine. If you want to make us talk and sound like Babylonians, that's fine. If you want us to work on behalf of some of your political ambitions, even that we can kind of cope with. But now you're asking us to worship a foreign God. And that is a line we will not cross, even if it means we're going to go to our deaths. And this is what it says here, Daniel 3 verses 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, I just want to pause here quickly. I think this teaches us of some ways that we can pray, where we can trust God's sovereignty and God's ability to do mighty things. And we can ask mighty things of God. And we can say, our God is able to, dot, 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 you fill in the blank. But even if he does not, we will still be faithful to him. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. King Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that he orders this furnace to be made so hot that some of the people making the furnace hot were killed by its heat. These three men were taken and thrown into the furnace. And you would think that they would be incinerated in seconds. But after a while, his officials are looking in saying, no, there's some guys walking around in there. Not just three, but four. One like the Son of Man is with them as well. What's going on? And they realized that the God of Israel had protected his people. Not one hair on their head was singed. Not a single scorch mark on their clothes as God was with them in that fire. But as we look at this part of the story, here's what we need to learn. And this comes naturally out of the previous point of God's sovereignty over all nations. When it comes to the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world, when it comes to the government of God and the government and politics and policies of this world, we need to have a hierarchy of loyalties. Listen, we're all welcome. I don't know how you're wired. I'm, I'm not very politically wired. 
Some of you are, and that's fine. We're all welcome to get passionate about some injustice. We want to see made right something that if we can get this moved forward, and if we can get government to back this, we know that it's about the good of the people. But our primary allegiance as followers of Jesus Christ is to the kingdom of God. And our secondary allegiance is to the kingdoms of this world. Of course, as citizens of heaven, we want to be the best citizens of earth. And so because we're in the kingdom of God, we want to make a difference in the kingdoms of this world. But our primary allegiance and priority has to be the kingdom of God. And this is what I alluded to earlier, where Daniel and his friends demonstrated incredible wisdom when it came to the secondary issues of Babylonian politics and some of their participation there. And yet they're not just giving in. They're not just drinking the Kool-Aid. They're not just compromising on everything. They're still saying, but so far and no further, we will not worship that God and we're willing to die for that. I hate to say, and I know I bring up social media all the time. And I know that the first thing people think of is, oh, the, oh that's, that's the young people. Let me tell you, have you ever seen some of the WhatsApp groups here at Riverside? Man, our over 50s have one of the most... Uh, uh, active WhatsApp groups in the church. And I'm not just zoning on them here, I promise you this. But when I look at social media, whether it's WhatsApp groups, Facebook, Twitter, when I see articles that are shared, when I see the comment section, and when I see what believers are saying, while on one hand as believers, because these are secondary issues and in many times issues of conscience, it is possible to have different political views and argue them out and do it wisely and seek the good of our nations and maybe different ways to do that. Unfortunately, what I see overtaking the airwaves is things and attitudes and ways that are hostile to the kingdom of God, that are prioritizing things of this world over the things of the kingdom of God. And to be honest, I could be saying this to any church on planet earth right now. So I'm not particularly thinking about any one person or one post that I've seen here. But for our own self-diagnosis, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Are you secure enough in your faith? And even secure enough for those of you who are active politically to stand up for a kingdom value that may be politically aligned with a different team. Do you know what I'm asking? Oh, I know that God loves the poor, but if I stand up for the poor, people are going to think that I vote A, B, and C. And because I don't want people to think that I vote A, B, and C, I'm going to keep quiet about the poor. See where I'm going with this? We censor ourselves politically and therefore we're not giving voice to issues that are crystal clear in the kingdom of God. 
Are you prepared to teach what Scripture says regardless of politics? Let me give you an example of this tension. Matt Chandler, who's got a large church in Texas, and if you know where Texas is, you know where most Texans and how most Texans vote. So Matt Chandler, and for those of you who may know him, he's, got a, he's, he's a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching guy. And he's totally unashamed to go there. But he says his experience has been when he teaches Scripture, not politicking, but when he teaches Scripture, but in an area that in the public imagination is aligned with one team. For example, if he teaches about racism, and this is, for example, is one of these areas where politics and the kingdom of God does intersect. Politics has tons to say about racism. And guess what? The kingdom of God has tons to say about racism. So he teaches into these issues, and he knows on Monday morning, he's going to get emails from all of his blue voting friends calling him out for compromising. A few months later, he might preach on the value and the dignity of human life and what that may mean for a topic such as abortion. And he knows that on Monday morning, sorry, did I get that the wrong way around? Okay, I'll correct it with this one. He knows that on Monday morning, all of his liberal voting friends are going to be emailing him, telling him that he's compromised. And he's saying, guys, both of these are kingdom values. Don't get this hierarchy wrong. We need to understand that if you believe that God is 100% aligned with every single one of your political values, I can promise you, you've got the pyramid and the hierarchy upside down. Because while there are better political systems than others, and I'm not going there today, I can guarantee you that on one hand, the values of Scripture, the biblical worldview, the kingdom of God may affirm certain views in different political systems. But I promise you this, it will also critique and confront views in the very same political systems. And so the question isn't, is Jesus on my team? Am I on his team? Am I willing to be known for that? Like Daniel and his friends, am I willing to prioritize the values of the kingdom of God over the values of my political system, even if it costs me? It may surprise you. I think Craig might have mentioned this in a sermon a few months, if not years ago. That when it came to Jesus' disciples, there was quite a variety, not only of different kinds of people and personalities, but even political views. For example, we had Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Now you must remember the government of the time was the oppressive Roman regime. Zealots were violently opposed to Rome and literally willing to fight Rome, while tax collectors were Jews who worked on behalf of Rome. Imagine what those fireside political conversations were like. Oddly enough, 
Matthew highlights this more than anybody else. And yet because of their priority of following Jesus, regardless of what some of them thought about Rome, we know the disciples took a very long time to understand the, Rome, the, 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 the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdoms of this world. That they were still able to be friends. They were still able to partner and do ministry together. And what that tells us, the vision this gives us, is that we should have more in common with those who are aligned with us in faith, even if they're not aligned with us politically. Unfortunately, just that is so often not our experience. If we're going to live out this hierarchy of loyalties, our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, even if it costs us. Our desire, if we are going to prioritize the kingdom of God, to love and to serve our neighbors. And for those of you who have been this for a while, you'll know everything the Bible means when it talks about our neighbors. It's not the people who look like you. It's not the people who vote like you. It's the people who don't. And so we're going to prioritize loving and serving our neighbors. We're even going to prioritize loving and serving our enemies over and above our allegiance to our political systems. This doesn't mean we don't have opinions, but we've got a hierarchy of loyalties. Now in a minute or two, we're going to go to the communion table. And so what does communion have to do with politics and the kingdom of God? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, just by the way, Daniel chapter 1 to 6, very easy to read. Daniel 7 onwards. Man, take you the rest of your life to read that. But I just want to read a few verses. Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Remember, there was one like a son of man in the flames. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, all nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This was written centuries before Christ. And so for centuries, Jewish thinkers and Jewish theologians wondered who is this coming figure? Who is the son of man that deserves the worship of all nations, that has authority not only over Israel, but over all peoples? Jesus arrives on the scene in a very kind of backwater part of Israel. And he says, I'm that guy. I'm the sovereign king. If we think about Jesus' baptism, he was anointed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and with power. If we think about his ministry, he confronted not nations, because our war is not against flesh and blood. He confronted the enemy. 
He confronted demonic powers. He confronted evil. He confronted sin. He confronted pain. He confronted brokenness and disease, bringing light and life into all of these places where the enemy had stolen and robbed and destroyed. Jesus demonstrated his power as king. But then we get to his crucifixion. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, I learned this this last, few, this last week, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not called king until he's standing before Pilate on his way to be crucified. And in the course of 30 verses, he's called king six times. Now, for the most part, he's called king by those who don't believe he is king. But the book is written in such a way that there's a heavy sense of irony in all those proclamations. See, we know what they don't know. And while they are crucifying him for his claims to be the son of God, for his claims to be the king, not only of Israel, but of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we know who he is and we know he is truly the king. And so on his path to his exaltation as the risen Lord and King. He goes through the cross where he defeats the ultimate enemy of sin and death and Satan once and for all. That is why if we think about this verse that we've been talking about with regards to discipleship, he can stand and say, I am this son of man and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The authority of the nations. And so every time we say this very simple phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know the word Christ is the Greek version of the word for Messiah. By calling Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his surname. We are declaring that he is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. He is the fulfillment of all the messianic expectations that the nation of Israel had. But we don't just call him Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We say Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we unpack that, we're saying that on one hand, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is Lord of this cosmic temple. And so as we take communion today, let's reorganize our priorities. Let's recognize Christ's sovereignty and the path of suffering that he took to give us life and to defeat our greatest enemies. Let us submit to his lordship. Let us submit to his kingdom. Don't rush into this. You might want to take an opportunity to do some heart work with God. Maybe acknowledge before him, God, I don't know if I've got this right. I know sometimes I don't. So what we're going to do, we'll have some music playing very gently in a second. Um, just because we are in a bit of a different season, uh, we did communion differently during COVID. We're kind of on our way back to doing it normally, but we still want to protect you in some way. And so you're going to line up. There's a table there, 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 and there. There's also something up there for you guys in the gallery. Um, someone will hand you 
a wafer as well as a juice. Uh, the, the, your hands will be sterilized as you're waiting there just so that we can protect one another. I know that some of our kids are in with us. And so parents, maybe you want to include your kids in the story. Don't just give them something to chow because lunch is too long away. Have a moment with your children. Speak about these issues. Have them understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his road to his exaltation was through the cross. Let us pray. God, we acknowledge that you are truly sovereign over all nations. And you deserve the worship and the honor of all peoples. And yet, Jesus, we see in you that the way you manifested your power was not to politically control people, but to humble yourself, to become a servant, to wash our feet, to cleanse us with your blood as you laid yourself down, not for any one nation, but all people who would trust you. And as we do that, Holy Spirit, I ask that we would repent, we would reorganize our priorities. I pray that our, any engagement subsequent to this would better reflect the values of the kingdom of God. But God, we have life because the King of Kings laid down his life for us. Let us take a few minutes in our own time to go and participate in communion together. Once you're ready, please take and we will close off in prayer.